0: Title for the whole weekend is very much looking up and looking forward looking unto Jesus and I don't need to ask any of you where that comes from because and we all know from our background where that has come whether you see it in English or in Greek as for as I soon the motto on the badge etc etc it's been great looking unto Jesus so the overall theme chosen for this book uh, which I often think is an appropriate title for this book of 2 Timothy namely that of God the gospel looking back to see what it is that is to be guarded, and looking forward to see how it will be guarded and how it will go on being guarded. And this, of course, therefore makes 2 Timothy an ideal book for us, Uh, as Paul comes to the end of his life and he hands the baton on to the next generation. We could really say that Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, don't drop the baton. Uh, he's passing it on, what he's received from Paul, what Paul has received from the Lord. Uh, and so briefly, what are we are going to do tonight? is It is really going to be fairly brief, much of an introduction. I'm not going to say everything there is, that could be said about uh, this first chapter, though we are actually squeezing our way into the first two verses of the first chapter. I hope you do all have a copy of these uh, outline notes. Uh, you've already got number two on the oh mind blank. But the number two is on the back of of your sheet. Uh, so if, if you haven't got one, please make sure you pick it up tomorrow morning. And then three and four will be on a, on another sheet again back to back uh, for, the, for the second one on Saturday uh, and also for uh, Sunday morning. What I want you to do tonight is briefly look at the background. And then to see something of the, uh, the challenge which is given to Timothy. Tomorrow morning we uh, uh, see the advice that Timothy is given by Paul as how he's to fulfil that challenge. After coffee we look at the warning which is given to Timothy and also to us not to be deflected from the correct resources to fulfil that challenge before finally on Sunday morning, uh, as well as the challenge being spelled out in the form of a charge, we come to what I consider one of the most thrilling passages uh, in terms of the work of God, of seeing God at work in the New Testament. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll have to wait and come on Sunday morning to find out what I believe that passage is, which I think is is, uh, tremendous. The background then, first of all, for the church, which is of course the church in Ephesus. Paul spent three years there as far as we can tell on his uh, second visit the church was founded probably around about sort of the end of the 50s, AD 57 or something like that Uh, And as Paul says goodbye to the leaders of that church and various other churches, in this famous passage in uh, in Acts 20, uh, chapter 20, don't bother to turn to it, but I'm going to read it to you. Paul is part of Paul's farewell, which is very much setting the marker for what he wants to see of the gospel uh, in the coming days. Uh, He says this, Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again, Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number... Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So Paul is concerned and realizes what's liable to happen and that there will be false teachers amazingly from within the church. I'm sure there were some listening to Paul at that time and said oh come on Paul, surely not. Surely not. We've had a wonderful time. All the teaching you've given us and this, we've seen the church growing and, and you're saying that some, some of us from inside the church are going to arise but sadly only a matter of about six years later we find Paul writing this in his first letter to Timothy. A mere six years from when he last said that. He says to Timothy, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men to stop teaching false doctrine, and to stop devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. In such a short time, false teaching from within the church arising that distort the gospel. And then a year later, we have the letter which we're looking at today uh, to Timothy. And sadly, something like approximately 30 years later, in the book of Revelation, we find Jesus sending a message to the church in Ephesus. You've lost your first love. A lot to commend in the church of Ephesus, but you've lost your first love. That's the church that Timothy is leading. And then Paul's own background concern uh, concern in the New Testament that Jesus' teaching uh, to the apostles, uh, should, which was now spreading uh, throughout the church, should be grounding the church in the truth, and in the truth of the teaching of Jesus, and Paul, uh, he's described uh, often as the chief of the apostles, is concerned with that work. But there are others teaching other things, teaching different things. So how can they know which is right, particularly if, if within the same fellowship, the two people saying something which is not quite the same? Well, the answer is the apostolic teaching. That was a great concern. What was the apostolic teaching? What was the teaching from Jesus to his apostles, to his disciples? and from them through to the church. Sadly, 2,000 years later, nothing has changed, has it? Still, we find false teaching within some churches. And we need to remember that the true apostolic succession, nothing to do with bishops, the true apostolic succession is that today we still teach and believe the apostolic gospel. That the gospel that Jesus committed to his disciples, and which has been passed on to the church, is still the concern. Paul, in prison, coming to the end of his life, as we see in chapter 4, um, I know that the time for my departure is at hand. It doesn't mean he's, he's released in prison, but he knows his life is coming to an end. It is there for a critical moment for the gospel, as the apostles begin to die out. How will the future generations of the church know what is the correct teaching? The church must know the apostolic gospel. Peter writes in his second letter, I will see that after my departure, you will always know and remember the teaching, obviously, of the gospel, the teaching that Jesus entrusted to us. So after the apostles have gone, after there's no more apostles there, it is absolutely vital that the church knows the apostolic teaching. That is the true apostolic succession. I mentioned my college already, Oak Hill, uh, in North London. I remember when I was there, seems a long time ago now, there was a, a, a perfectly true story which arose, which came to us from one of the other colleges. I can't remember which, which is probably just as well, because I'm going to say something not very kind about it. But um, it was a high church college. It was one of the, it was really very um, nearer to Rome than to Canterbury, shall we say. And this was the, this was the you, you'll have a struggle believing this, but I, I, I promise you, I'm telling it truthfully. They were set to challenge, these students, and the challenge they were set was this. You ought to imagine that all the bishops, all the ordained bishops in the world, were at a convention on a desert island together, and a bomb was dropped on that island, and all the bishops were obliterated. So there were no more bishops alive. What, what would happen? What, what be the next step? And do you know the serious answer they came to. And I'm, I'm not joking. The serious answer they came to was were, Jesus would have to come again. There would have to be another incarnation. The incarnation would have to happen again in order to start another chain of bishops who will lay hands on bishops, who will lay hands on bishops. But you see, that's just not necessary. We have the teaching of Jesus. We have the apostolic teaching, the apostolic faith, the teaching that Jesus commended. To his, his disciples and to his church. So in these pastorals, with the 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, often called the pastoral epistles, urgent instructions to the next generation of teachers to guard the gospel. And we've seen a few moments how they were to, to do that. As such today, these three letters, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, give us a strong reminder of the priorities of gospel ministry. Dick Lucas, I remember some years ago, in talking about, uh, uh, I think it was 2 Timothy, it may have been 1 Timothy, but he, he came up with an interesting phrase. He, he spoke about the deafening silence of the pastorals. The deafening silence of the pastorals. What he meant by was by this, that the pastorals are the urgent, the message to the urgent message to the next generation of pastors and teachers. What were the priorities of gospel ministry and the deafening silence is that nowhere in any of these three epistles do you find anything about sacramental ministry about worship leaders about healing ministry about counselling ministry all of these are important I'm not saying we don't do any of these but they're not the urgent priorities of the pastoral ministry of gospel ministry they have their place but they're not the top of the list they're not if you like to put it this way they're not what clergy are ordained for they are ordained for preaching of the word incidentally on coming away from other things which may have an importance there is equally no mention of compulsory celibacy there is no mention of a higher status for clergy there is no mention of confession there is no mention of extreme there is no mention of so many things which seem to occupy a lot of the ministry today in so do many churches what Paul is concerned about is the urgent priority of preaching the gospel. As he says in Acts 20, that he proclaimed the whole counsel of God. Summed up in verse 1 here, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. A very neat summary of the gospel there. The promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul says in Philippians, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may testify to the gospel of God's grace. That's Paul's absolute priority. And as he comes to the end of his life, He is so concerned that that gospel priority shall go on to the next generation. What about Timothy then? Well, a young man brought up to believe the promise of God, of course, in days when he was taught the Old Testament. When he says, you learn from youth, this is the Old Testament he was talking about, the promise of God in the scriptures as he and his family would have known them at that time. You've known from infancy the Holy Scriptures which were able to make you wise for salvation. That's not just the New Testament. The whole Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. So, possibly, coming to faith in Christ as a teenager, um, Lance Pearson has written a fascinating book about Timothy, so I will to speculate on much of Timothy's life if you don't know it it's, uh, I forget what he's exactly called but he, he deals with all the, the things about Timothy in quite a, quite a good book uh, of, of, of Timothy's life and the letters and, and his different ministry uh, now we have him probably in his early 30s in charge of this very important church at Ephesus which, Ephesus, which appears so many times uh, in the New Testament Is, was Timothy a wimp? that's uh, I, I suspect I would fall out with Lance on this, because I think I think in his book he does come up with that Timothy is a bit of a wimp. And I, I think I would want to object to that. I think Timothy a, is a difficult ministry. And the word in verse 7, if you look at verse 7, God did not give us a spirit of timidity. That's the, that's the key word. And people have concluded from that that Timothy was timid. However, it's an interesting word. It's a word that is nowhere else used in the New Testament, so we can't actually compare it with how it's used elsewhere. It basically means cowardice. Courage, you see, is courage when you are afraid, but you still keep going. Cowardice is when you are afraid, but you don't keep going. You turn back. You turn away, and you turn back. That's really what this word means. It means turning back because it, the going is getting tough. Paul knows that Timothy will be tempted to turn back, to give up, when the going is tough. And that can happen to to any of us. I think back to the early days of my church in the Midlands, which was not an easy time. We had three very, very difficult years there. Considerable opposition to the Gospel. Actually, when it was opposition to the Gospel, it was, uh, in a sense, easier to handle, but it did, usually came as as personal opposition. Life was not easy for us in those early days. And uh, while we were there, David Bubbers, who was my uh, boss at CPAS, knew that we were interested in Guernsey. Our great friend, Godfrey Taylor, was the vicar there. and, And he was moving, in fact, to Bournemouth. And uh, he knew, and I remember saying to David over a cup of coffee, oh, we'd love to go to Guernsey. He wrote to us in that three years and said, I know you're interested in Guernsey. I know you're having a typical time. Would you like to be put forward for Guernsey? And Judy wrote a little letter, Dear David, please arrange our transfer to Guernsey. Love, Judy. And she put it in an envelope, and it sat inside our front door for months. And eventually we tore it up, threw it away. To go at that stage would have been quite the wrong thing to do. We'd have gone from a difficult situation because it was being difficult, and not because the Lord was leading us. And we stayed at Leamington for 13 years, and eventually had a wonderful, wonderful, happy time. So Paul, you see here, reminds Timothy what God does give us, a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Power not to do powerful things, but as he says in Colossians 1, power to stand when things are difficult. Power with great patience and endurance. Power to stand firm when the prevailing wind is against you. That's power. Not to be a powerful person. Not to do tremendous things and great exploits. But power to stand when the opposition to the gospel is hard. A spirit of love. Timothy Saul is tested by the false teachers. But he needs to stand firm and to love the people for whom he is to minister when we left Clemington Spa. We were left with much tears, we loved the people and, and had a really, really wonderful time. When the gospel began to grow there and the opposition had faded away, we had a wonderful time. I'd have been very sad not to, uh, not to have had that and we were both given and received great love in that particular fellowship. And then thirdly, the spirit of self-discipline which basically means self-control just to, to keep going The work of the Holy Spirit can help us turn self-pity into self-discipline and so into self-control. And so this brings us to the heart of Paul's message to Timothy, which is Timothy's challenge. And we find it here in verse 8. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Somebody described this as the hardest section in the whole of 2 Timothy. And the reason it's described as hard is because it is not what we want to hear. We don't really want to hear that sort of thing. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Hang on a minute. That's not quite what I thought I was ordained for. Being faithful uh, to the gospel and suffering for the gospel go hand in hand. And tomorrow morning we shall see why they go hand in hand. So more of that then. In spite of what has happened to Paul, he wants to strengthen Timothy to keep going. And inspiration for this will come from the gospel itself. Look at verse 9. We're saved by the power of God who has saved us and called us not to a comfortable life but to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done but because of his own purpose and grace. This is amazing. God calls us irrespective of our worthiness. He doesn't call us because we're nice people. He doesn't call us us because we're useful to him. Oh, I can use that person. He doesn't call us because we're clever or mighty or powerful. He doesn't call us because of any reason within us. He calls us because of his grace. And when life is tough, we need to realize that our salvation does not depend on our success in ministry we're not saved because we have been successful in whatever God has called us to do I think I, was it last year I said that every Christian is immortal until God's full timetable for them has finished so if you are still alive, and I think most of you are that means God still has something for you to do God is still wanting to use you, but that's not why he called you He called you because of his grace. He didn't respond to something in you and in me. His grace called us so that his power can use us. The gospel of his grace. His free choice. Somebody in their own church spoke just, only this last week on Sunday night, and he picked up the word grace, uh, he picked up the word um, favor in Luke chapter 1 of the Gables speaking to Mary. And he said, what does favor mean? Comes from the word charis, from which we get charismatic. So this is what he went on to say. So God recognized something good in Mary that he could use. He recognized there was gifts in there that he could use. That's rubbish. Yes, the word was charis, but charis means grace. God's grace has fallen upon you, not because there's not something in you, Mary, but because God has chosen you. It's his grace which chooses us for his glory and for his purposes. Just see the enormity of this grace. What does he say? Verse 9, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Eat your heart out, Richard Dawkins. God's grace called us before there was any globules and blobs to form something of matter million, millions of years later God's grace called us before the beginning of time the gospel is not plan B you see God didn't say when it got to Malachi or somewhere in the space between the testaments well that hasn't quite worked let's try something else I'll see if my son can do a bit better the gospel is not plan B the gospel was always plan A Christ is the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. God knew what he was doing. And God knew what he was doing when he was called us. His grace was given us it's a gift in Christ before time began. Now revealed in the present. It says it was uh, given us before... Um, uh, before the beginning of time, now verse 10, it has now appeared, been revealed, through the appearing of our Saviour Jesus. So it's come not only in the past, but it's grace which is right through the present. Uh, in his life, his death and resurrection of Jesus, who by his death has destroyed death. Literally, it, means, it says that he took away its power. Power to have the last word over sin. Now the last word over sin is judgment, but Jesus has removed that power by his cross. So the coming into time, he now has the last word, not death and, death and, 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 uh, and sin. Jesus, death and resurrection now has the last word. And not only in the past and the present, but on into the future, because he's destroyed death. And what's he done? He's brought life and immortality. So God's grace has no beginning and no end. God's grace began before there was any time. God's grace will still be going when time has ceased to be. Immortality has got no end to it. That's the grace of God that called us and used us. The cross of Jesus in time achieved salvation for all time and for all eternity. So what is Timothy to do? Well, he is to guard the gospel. Here we have in verse 12 that's why I'm suffering as I am It. I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard that which I have entrusted to him against that day now I'm going to get into trouble now because I am going to criticise a chorus which we used to sing in crusaders <laughs> and some of you won't like it but I'm sorry <laughs> but the crusader chorus got it wrong well let's call it the CSSM chorus and we don't have to blame crusaders shall we because I used to sing this lustily, not knowing that it's not correct, it's not scriptural. And this translation is wrong, and I want to show you why. The important word is the word deposit. A deposit, it comes 30 times in these two letters. A deposit is something that you have put for safekeeping, probably in a bank, though banks are not a word one wants to talk about today, but we have glossed over that. You, you deposit something undamaged and untampered with so that you can retrieve it when you want it and find it in exactly the same state as when you put it in the owner of whatever it is entrusts this something to someone else who will take care of it and it will be untampered and undamaged well what is the it? well it's the gospel that's the key point it's the gospel and how is it guarded? well it's being guarded by being passed on passed on untampered Passed on unchanged. Paul has been appointed a herald of this gospel. He says in verse um, 11, Of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And he says, I passed it on to you, Timothy. Verse 13, what you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with a faith and love in Christ Jesus. And Timothy is to guard that good, here's the actual word, deposit that good deposit that was entrusted to you, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. What is Timothy to do with it? Well, chapter 2, verse 2 tells us what he's to do with it. The things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. You have four generations of gospel teachers in that one verse. You have Paul, you have Timothy, you have the faithful men, and the others they're going to teach. So there's, there's the apostolic succession of the apostolic gospel being faithfully passed on for one generation to the next. What you heard, Timothy, you pass it on. And what they hear from you, they must pass on. Because what you heard from me, you're passing on. Do you see the point? It's rather pedantic, but it's very, very important. And this, of course, is the point of Paul's final charge in, uh, in, in chapter 4, which we shall come to on Sunday morning. So what then in verse 12? Well, the text actually says, "'My deposit.'" It says, I'm convinced that he's able to guard my deposit. Now, the translation says, what I, have entrust, what I have entrusted to him. It's simply trying to translate the phrase, my deposit. And exactly the same phrase is in verse 14, when it says, the good deposit that was entrusted to you, is just simply your deposit or the deposit. And this whole phrase has been put in to try and elucidate the meaning of that particular word. But you see, the theme of this whole passage is not the final perseverance of the saints. That's a perfectly valid gospel theme, but it's not in, in, in Timothy, uh, two Timothy chapter one here. When Paul says, apparently, according to the NIV, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him. In other words, I'm safe. Because I've entrusted myself to him and I'm safe, yes I am safe, and the New Testament says that, but that's not what this verse is saying, that's not the theme of this passage. In fact, the theme of the passage is the faithfulness to the Gospel. If you happen to have an ESV in front of you, you actually have the correct translation, because what he should have said, what it should have been translated, I know whom I have believed, I'm convinced that he is able to guard what he has entrusted to me, which is completely the opposite way around what it says here, I have entrusted him he is able to guard my deposit the deposit which has been given to me which I'm now passing on to you Timothy, which you must pass on to other people, faithfulness to the gospel and what does he say, he says he will guard it, well if he's going to guard it, you jolly well will guard it, must guard it Timothy, in fact he says in verse 14, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us he is going to guard it, so you must guard it. You guard it, Timothy, because he is going to guard it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a partnership, if you like, not an equal partnership. But Timothy's work is to reflect that keeping work of the Holy Spirit, who will oversee the gospel, to make sure that the gospel goes on. And, in fact, if you just glance across to chapter 1 to 1 Timothy, chapter 6 and verse 20, and my Bible it's the same page, you have, sadly, you have the well. Sadly, because of the translation, you have exactly the same phrase. But look how it's been translated in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. What the Greek says is Timothy, guard the deposit. Now there you've got the sense. You have had you, the, the deposit. The gospel has been entrusted to you, Timothy. You guard it, and the way you do that is by passing it on faithfully to the next generation. This is so relevant to us today as we hand the battle on to the next generation. As things get tough, as Christianity gets more and more marginalised, as it becomes harder and harder to, to become a Christian, as freedom of speech in this country means freedom for anybody except Christians, as it seems to be going more and more in that direction. You're free, you are free to express your opinions, provided they're not biblical opinions, because you're liable to go to court for that in what's the date today it's the 3rd of December 4th of December in four days time there's a couple in Liverpool who will be in the dock in the dock would you believe for saying that Jesus was not a minor prophet of Islam, but he was the son of God they're up on a criminal charge for having said Jesus is, not, is the son of God he's not a minor prophet of Islam this is what we used to think of as a Christian country but isn't that, it's going to be harder and harder For Christians to be faithful to God, that truth of the gospel, and to pass it on. Don't change it. Don't tamper with it. Don't leave it out. It is a finished gospel. Pass it on intact. Fight the good fight and fan the flame. Now the question with which I leave you tonight, which we're going to answer and look at tomorrow, why might the flame go out? Why might that flame go out? Why has Timothy got to fan it? Why might it go out? Well, we shall see that tomorrow morning. Paul's charge then to Timothy is to guard that deposit, which he has been entrusted with. It's a lovely word, actually. Uh, deposit implies this. God has entrusted you with something so valuable that he wants you to keep it safe and hand it on. And often we perhaps would like to say, Lord, you know, um, why don't you, you look after it? I'll just do my best for you, but please, you, you guard the gospel. No, he says, I'm giving it to you to guard. You've got to guard it, and you've got to pass it on. And that's true for all of us as we pass the baton on to the next generation and to challenge and inspire and read, pray for them that they will be faithful to that same gospel that many more may come to find the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus.